Welcome to the teaching ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Santa Maria, California. Join our pastors as they share biblical principles of God's transforming grace so that you may learn God's word in order to live God's way. As human beings, we like to get our own way. And if we given the chance, we will tweak and change anything in our lives to suit our own preferences and our own fancies. Because we're that way, we need a 7th century prophet by the name of Nahum to kind of course correct us this morning. We are in Nahum chapter 1, looking at the first half of verse 3. I know I told you last week that we'd begin to pick up the pace, and here I've just taken half the verse. Lord willing, by the time we get to chapter 2, at the end of August, I believe, we'll pick up the pace. If you're visiting with us, uh, last month we finished up the prophet Jonah, looking at his book, God Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, had sent the prophet Jonah to the city of Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria. It was a wicked, evil city. And God sent the prophet Jonah to that city to tell them that they needed to repent or God was going to wipe them out. And the Ninevites responded. They changed their wicked ways. And so God relented from sending disaster. Fast forward 100 plus years and we land in the book of Nahum and the Ninevites have gone back to their evil ways and now it's too late. Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, is going to wipe out men, women, and children in this city because of their wickedness. That's, we'll bring, that will bring you up to speed with Nahum. Look at verse 3. We'll read the verse. Have to hear the words of the powerful God, the Lord, Yahweh, is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Let's pray. Father, you are the almighty God, the all-powerful God, sovereign in total control of every detail in the universe, and no human being, despite how much they try, can thwart your plans, can change you, God, you reign supreme. You are a God of power and a God of wrath and a God of anger, but you're also a God of mercy and a God of grace and love. And and you showed that side of who you are most clearly when you sent your son into this world and you poured your wrath out upon him because of our sin. And he fully absorbed every last drop, every ounce of your anger and wrath and just your justice to to bring us to you. And so you are an amazing God. And we've only scratched the surface of understanding who you are. Would you help us now by your Holy Spirit to see who you are as Nahum describes you in this verse Would you open our eyes to see wonderful truths out of your word that we may store them up in our heart that we may not sin against you? Would you give us the grace to do that? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. There are two kinds of people here today. There are those who have been to the great state of Texas, and there are those who have never been. 
Now, I'm not here to promote the great state of Texas because I'm a Texan. Actually, I was born in Arkansas, raised in Oklahoma. So I'm an Okie. We have a lot of issues with Texas, if you didn't know that. But I'm an Okie, but I spent half of my life in Oklahoma, half of it in Texas, a couple of years in L.A., almost a year here on the Central Coast. It's wonderful here. Um, but I'm an Okie, but I, I'm, I want to prepare, not because I'm a Texan, but because I've lived there. I want to prepare those of you who have never been to Texas. I want to get you ready in case you ever visit Texas. If you visit Texas someday, you need to know one thing, and this one thing will help you as you visit Texas, and that one thing is simply this. Don't mess with Texas. That, that slogan and that phrase was started, I believe, in 1986 as an anti-littering campaign because people were throwing their trash and Texas wanted, wanted people to know, hey, if you visit here, don't change our landscape, don't alter our landscape, don't tweak our landscape with your trash. Don't mess with Texas. Over the years, I think it's kind of morphed, and I think there are some Texans that don't even know the roots of this saying. Over the years, it has kind of morphed into this saying of, don't mess with Texas. And, and when they say that, you have to picture them with a 12-gauge shotgun in their hand. I wouldn't be surprised if there's a church somewhere in Texas that has a banner hanging up that says, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, and don't mess with Texas. Texas pride runs deep. The message is clear. Don't mess with Texas. I think the prophet Nahum would like that. I think he would look at that statement and say, I kind of like that. But, but Nahum would tweak that phrase a little bit. Nahum would, would change it and alter it a little bit. And I think he would word it this way, which is our big idea today for the sermon. Nahum would say, don't mess with Jesus. Nahum will show us today that we should not mess with God, that we should not live lives of defiance as if we could get away with anything, as if we could stand up to a holy God and say, I'm going to live my way. Nahum would say, you won't win, so don't mess with Jesus. But I think also Nahum would use that and he would say, don't mess with Jesus, don't mess with God. Don't mess with the Father, don't mess with the Son, don't mess with the Spirit. Don't try to change God. Don't try to mess with Him. Don't try to alter His character. Nahum would say you can't change or switch out any attributes of God that you don't like. Listen, God is comfortable in His own skin. God is comfortable being who He is. We humans have a problem with God. But God's okay with being God as he's revealed in scripture. God doesn't need some slick marketing campaign to try to improve his image. You know, God doesn't have bad PR because of certain attributes of his character. God is fully comfortable being who he is. We live in a world where people want to live lives in defiance to this holy, sovereign God. We live in a world where people want to mess with God. They want to challenge God by the way that they live. And we live in a world where people and churches and Christians want to mess 
with God. They want to change him. They want to alter him. They, they read about God in Scripture and they say, I don't really like that aspect of his character. And so I want to soften that or do away with it. We live in a culture, even in churches now, where people don't like particular things and aspects and attributes of God's character and they want to tone it down a little bit. Nahum needs to remind us today that we need to let God be God, not to mess with Jesus. Nahum will teach us that today. Look at verse 3 again. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Nahum's message was a message that the city of Nineveh needed to hear. They had exhausted, they had drained all of God's patience. They had experienced the mercy and grace of God through the ministry of the prophet Jonah. But the time had finally come when they would see another side of God, another angle of God, a side that they would not want to experience. See, under the preaching of Jonah, Nineveh experienced a merciful, gracious God. They opted out of experiencing the wrath and anger of God during the time of Jonah. But Nahum lets the city of Nineveh know now that it's too late. They don't have that option anymore. They don't have the option of experiencing mercy and grace from God. Nahum would say, there are no more options, Nineveh. Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, is coming against you in judgment, and he will wipe out men, women, and children in this city. But as you read verse 3, at first glance, it seems like there still is that option of mercy. Because verse 3 says, the Lord is slow to anger. So as we read that, it seems like maybe mercy still is an option for Nineveh. Uh, Two observations about this phrase, the Lord is slow to anger. We saw this in Jonah, but it's worth repeating. The phrase slow to anger literally in Hebrew means long of nose. What, What typically gets translated as slow to anger in most English translations, is this Hebrew phrase, Eric Apayim. It means literally literally to be long of nose. It's an expression that can mean slow to anger, patient or long-suffering. When Nahum and Scripture speaks of God of having this, the God who has a long nose, they mean that, that God isn't quick-tempered. He, he's slow to get anger. He's, he's slow for his nostrils to flare out, if you will. This Hebrew phrase, long of nose, was used to describe someone who was patient or slow to anger, Proverbs 14, 29. Conversely, a person short of nose, as Proverbs 14, 17 says, was considered to be impatient or quick-tempered. So if you, had, if you had a short nose, they would say, if you were quick to get angry, they would say, oh, he's got a short nose. Kind of the way we would say today someone's hot-headed or they have a short fuse. But God has a long nose. He's slow to anger. He's patient. But there's more to this idea of picturing God with a long nose. The theology of this Hebrew expression must be what impresses us, must, must get inside of our hearts and minds. God is patient with people. God is patient with sinners like you and like me. 
We do not perish or get what we deserve precisely because God is patient. Because God's nose is long, he does not treat us as we deserve. And that sounds like good news for Nineveh, doesn't it? In fact, they had already heard this good news through Jonah. They had already heard about Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, and that he had a a long nose. Maybe there were a few faded bumper stickers on some cars in Nineveh that said, I like the long-nosed God. But that truth, like that bumper sticker, was quickly fading for Nineveh. Second observation is that this phrase is a popular phrase in the Old Testament. Every decent Israelite knew this. This verse would have been in the Awana TNT starter zone. You know, you would have had to memorize this verse in order to get your Awana handbook. This would have been one of the, the fighter verses, the, the memory verses. This phrase is all over the Old Testament. You can, the notes will be online later this week. You can look them up. I encourage you to do that and see how many times it's used. It's used in Exodus 34. Verses 4 through 7, it says, So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. And he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And then it occurs again in Numbers 14, verses 17 through 19. And now please let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and the fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. Notice though, when Nahum uses this very popular expression, He never completes the refrain from Exodus 34 in Numbers 14. Nahum actually switches a word out. He he tweaks it and alters it. Look at verse 3 again in Nahum. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. Nahum tweaks the normal Old Testament phrase. And and we, and, and perhaps the Ninevites, expect him to say, the Lord is slow to anger and great in mercy, or great in steadfast love. But he switches out mercy. He switches out steadfast love with the word power. Nineveh had already experienced the mercy of God in Jonah's ministry, but now it's too late. Mercy is not an option anymore. They have exhausted God's mercy. They have drained God's mercy. And now they will experience the God of great power. Nahum has tweaked this for a reason. I didn't mention it earlier, but I loved how we tweak the lyrics to that last song. Maybe you know the song from the radio. Uh, I've always had issues with it. Um, 
because it says that Jesus took the fall and thought of us above all. But that's wrong. He thought of the glory of the Father above all. In fact, when I was in seminary, one of my professors put in the CD with the lyrics on the screen and played it, and everybody was singing their hand, raising their hands and singing away. And it got to the last part where it says, but, you, know, you thought of me above all. And he hits eject on the CD and puts it in its case. And he throws it against the wall and it shatters. And he says, blasphemy. He did not think of us above all. Christ thought of the glory of his father above all. I love how we tweaked. I think if Nahum were here, he would say, I love how you tweaked the words to that popular song. Because Nahum has come and taken a popular Old Testament expression and he's tweaked it. The Lord is slow to anger. And instead of saying great in mercy or steadfast love, now he says he's great in power. 100 plus years earlier, Nineveh experienced God's patience. But now they will experience God's power. Nineveh is about to understand why the Texans, I mean, I mean the Israelites have this expression that says, don't mess with Jesus. Don't mess with God. Don't try to change him out to fit your idea of who, who he should be. Elsewhere in the Old Testament, the phrase great in power refers to the, the mighty supernatural power of God which spoke this world into existence that God just spoke and they're Saturn. That's the kind of power that's about to come knocking on the door of every Ninevite. It's also used uh, in the Old Testament to describe the way God delivered Israel out of the clutches of Egypt, how God spoke and the Red Sea parted and the Israelites walked across dry land and, and the sea swallowed up Pharaoh and his army. This God who has power to speak planets and galaxies and universes into existence, who is able to save his people, this kind of power is now going to come full throttle against the city of Nineveh because of their wickedness. Remember how wicked they were? They would capture people in battle, cut off their hands, arms, feet, other extremities, gouge out their eyes, cut off their heads, make towers out of heads, hang heads in, in the trees like Christmas ornaments. These people were wicked and they were about to experience the power of Yahweh, the sovereign Lord. These words of Nahum speaking against Nineveh and against Assyria would have been shocking. Assyria was the superpower of the day. They bullied everyone. They dominated everyone. No one could take Assyria down. But somebody soon was going to the Lord himself. Assyria thought they were safe. Understand this, any nation or political power or political leader that thinks it will last forever ought to go out under a shade tree and read the book of Nahum. Look at history. Babylon, Assyria, the Medes, the Persians, Rome, Germany. You fill in the blank. You pick a country and you put it in the blank. Can we even fathom that the USA might not be around someday? Can we even entertain that thought that we might not be here? Nahum should be required reading for every single American. 
And just so I don't get any emails this week, I'm going to let R.C. Sproul redirect our attention to where it should be. So if you've got an issue with what I'm about to read, ligonier.org, send off your little email. But I think he's right. R.C. Sproul says, Evangelical Christians love America. Some see in her the last hope of creating a Christian nation. But it is not a Christian nation. It is pagan to the core. It is in danger of becoming, if it is not already, the new evil empire. The Mayflower Compact is a museum piece, a relic of a forgotten era. In God we trust is now a lie. Yes, we must always work for social reform. Yes, we must be profane in Martin Luther's sense of going out of the temple and into the world. We do not despise the country of our birth. But in what do we invest our hope? The state is not God. The nation is not the promised land. The president is not our king. The Congress is not our savior. Our welfare can never be found in the city of man. The federal government is not sovereign. We live in every age and in every generation by the rivers of Babylon. We need to understand that clearly. We must learn how to sing the Lord's song in a strange and foreign land. America will fall. The United States will inevitably disintegrate. The stars and stripes will bleed. The White House will turn to rubble. That is certain. We stand like Augustine before the sea. We pray that God will spare our nation. If he chooses not to, we ask for the grace to accept its demise. In either case, we look to him who is our king and to heaven which is our home. We await the city of God, the heavenly Jerusalem, whose builder and maker is God. Strong words. But we would be naive if we think there is no way that America could ever fall. We would be naive if we think that we could never fall or experience demise. I'm sure Babylon thought that way. And Assyria and the Medes, and the Persians, and Rome, and Germany in its heyday of political power, and Nineveh. Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, is slow to anger, but he is also great in power, and he will by no means clear the guilty. That means no one can escape. No nation can escape. No political leader can escape no person sitting in the pew at church on a Sunday morning can escape. The only way to escape the coming judgment and wrath of God, the only way that you can be cleared and declared not guilty is through repentance, remorse and and brokenness of heart of saying, God, I've broken your commandments. I've lived contrary to your ways. Please forgive me. I look to Jesus. I look to his life, death, resurrection. I trust in it. That's the only way to be declared not guilty. No nation is exempt. No political leader. 
See, Nineveh had experienced the merciful God of Exodus 34. They had experienced the merciful God of Numbers 14. They had experienced the merciful God of Jonah 4.2. But now they're about to experience the God of Nahum 1.3. The Lord is great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. That means no one's getting away with anything unless they trust in Jesus. Nahum really wants to get his point across that the Lord will by no means clear the guilty because he says it two times in Hebrew. You don't see it in your English translations, but literally in Hebrew it says this, Yahweh is long of nose and certainly will not leave the guilty unpunished. Certainly will not leave the guilty unpunished. Nahum's trying to make a point. No one's getting away with anything. No nation's getting away with anything. No political leader's getting away with anything. No person is getting away with anything unless they flee to Jesus. It is a sober reminder that every nation and every person and every political power and leader needs to hear, don't mess with Jesus. But we like to mess with God. We like to live in defiance of him. Not just by the way we live in defiance to his commands, but we like to to mess with God. We like to tinker with him. We like to tweak him when there's things that we don't like about him, when there's things that scripture says about him, and it makes us uncomfortable in our politically correct postmodern world. When we read things about God that make us uncomfortable, we like to change him. We don't want him to be the God of power who judges nations, our nation, or peoples, and the God who by no means will clear the guilty. We don't like that because we live here and because we have friends and family that don't know Jesus. So many people today, and perhaps the Ninevites were this way, want to pick and choose the God that they want. Why? Because it's in our blood. We want options. When it comes to God, we want options because we have options for everything else in our life. Go to In-N-Out and you've got options. Animal style, ketchup and mustard instead of the spread, which I go with because the spread is like a distant cousin of mayonnaise, so I'm not getting that. I like my options at In-N-Out. Go to Starbucks, and you've got options, don't you? Decaf, triple gande, three-pump vanilla, non-fat, three-sweet and low, no-foam, extra-hot latte. And to think, that's not one of the complicated drinks. See, we all want options. Go to the car dealership, turn on your radio, turn on your TV. Options, 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 options. We all want and love options, even when it comes to God. Nahum has no time for options. Nahum isn't a car dealer that lets you pick and choose what features you want. Nahum is an Old Testament prophet who has no time, no tolerance for being politically correct. He has a message and he's here to deliver it, come what may. Understand this, Grace. It's easy to love the God of John 3.16. God so loved the world. Everybody loves the God of John 3.16, don't they? People at your work who aren't Christians, 
they love the God of John 3.16. Oprah, she loves the God of John 3.16. It's easy to love the God of John 3.16. God so loved the world. It's easy to love that God. It takes a miracle to love the God of Isaiah 63. Isaiah 63. Who is this who comes from Edom? In crimson garments from Bozrah, he who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. Isaiah 63 verses 1 through 6. You see, it's easy to love the God of John 3, 16. It takes a miracle to love the God of Isaiah 63. The God of Isaiah 63 who tramples his enemies and their blood splashes up on his garments. It takes a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit of God through the gospel message to love the God of Nahum, to love the God of Isaiah 63, to love the God of Revelation 19 who comes back with a sword in his mouth and wipes out his enemies. You see, the miracle of regeneration, of being born again, of becoming a Christian and becoming a disciple, of becoming an adopted child of God, that miracle of regeneration enables you to love God as he is, wise, invisible, omniscient, omnipresent, eternal, unchangeable, truthful, good, loving, holy, righteous, just, jealous, wrathful, angry, omnipotent, perfect, happy, beautiful, and sovereign, to name a few. You can't pick and choose out of this list. Don't mess with Jesus. Don't mess with God. Don't tinker with him. Don't try to tweak him. Don't treat the triune God like a Mr. Potato Head that you get to put together all the attributes of his character that sit well with you, that make you comfortable. You can't say, I'll take the God of John 3.16, but not take the God of Isaiah 63. Christianity is receiving and loving and embracing the God who so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. And it is receiving and loving and embracing the God of Isaiah 63 who tramples enemies under his feet and wears blood-stained clothes. That is biblical Christianity. And Nahum would wholeheartedly agree. Though it seems like Nahum's prophecy is off balance with all this talk of anger and wrath and judgment, it's actually full of gospel hope. 
He does describe in detail the anger and wrath of a holy God. But this wrathful holy God is provoked precisely because he is the creator. And creation is living contrary to his ways. And he is provoked because his people have been attacked by Assyria and by Nineveh. Old Testament professor Eugene Merrill at Dallas Seminary says, for God never to be angry would be a denial of his full-orbed character in that it would allow him a tolerance of evil diametrically opposed to that which is central to his essence, which is absolute holiness. But people still try to deny that God is angry at sin and the destruction and perversion of shalom, peace, wellness, and whole being in this world. There's people still today, there's pastors and there's churches that want to deny that God is angry at sin. You remember all the frenzy about a year and a half, two years ago about Rob Bell, a pastor in Michigan. His book came out titled Love Wins, Heaven, Hell, and the Fate of Every Person Who Ever Lived. In that book, Rob Bell claims that God's love wins and triumphs over all sin and evil and that in the end, everyone gets reconciled to God, everyone goes to heaven, and we're all one big happy family. And some people, Christians, pastors, churches, were and still are lapping it up like thirsty dogs. Why? Because they're not comfortable with the God revealed in the Bible. Listen, God is comfortable in his skin. He's okay being who he is. We don't have to tweak him. We don't have to change him. We don't have to alter him in order to make our message appealing to this world. Our message is appealing when we speak the truth. Here's what Rob Bell said in his book. Will everybody be saved or will some perish apart from God forever because of their choices? Those are questions, or more accurately, those are tensions we are free to leave fully intact. We don't need to resolve them or answer them because we can't. And so we simply respect them, creating space for the freedom that love requires. Leave the tension freely intact. Create space for freedom. There is already enough space between us fallen sinners and a holy God. I don't need any more space. There's a chasm big enough and deep enough that I can never get across it to God apart from Jesus Christ. So how dare we say create enough space and freedom. Leave the tension fully intact. Jesus came to fix that tension. And if that gap is not closed, the only thing any human being can look forward to is eternity in hell forever. Suffering the presence in hell of a holy God. Don't think hell is separation from God. He will be there in the full force of his wrath and anger nonstop. And Rob Bell says, we're free to leave that, leave that tension there. He also says, a staggering number of people have been taught that a select few Christians will spend forever in a peaceful, joyous place called heaven while the rest of humanity spends forever in torment and punishment in hell with no chance for anything better. It's been clearly communicated to many that this belief is a central truth of the Christian faith and to reject it is, in essence, to reject Jesus. This is misguided. 
toxic and ultimately subverts the contagious spread of Jesus' message of love, peace, forgiveness, and joy that our world desperately needs to hear. Sounds like Oprah to me. Misguided, toxic, Rob Bell is dead wrong. Love wins when the truth is told. Love wins when the gory, violent, bloody gospel of Jesus Christ is proclaimed in all of its robust fullness. Love wins when sinners quit messing with God and trying to tweak him and change him and they stop messing with him and his character and his word. Nahum would have serious issues with this line of thinking that tries to deny hell that is so prevalent in many churches today. In case you're wondering and you haven't figured it out yet, we don't believe that here at Grace. I don't know if, you're, if you caught that yet. Maybe you're a little slow. That's okay. We don't believe that here at Grace. We would line up theologically with Nahum. Scripture paints the picture of God. This book defines him. If we try and refashion him for ourselves, decay always follows. That's what Romans 1 is about. O. Palmer Robertson, an Old Testament commentator, says, once a person creates in his mind another God, moral disorder follows inevitably. If you try and mess with God and change him and tweak him, moral decay always follows. That's what Romans 1 says. See, we go to Romans 1 to tell people that homosexuality is wrong, and we should go there. The problem is that we don't keep reading the verses. Because if you keep reading the verses of Romans 1, Romans 1 is reading our mail. Yes, The reason homosexuality exists is because, as Paul says in Romans 1, they suppress the truth that they know and they keep stuffing it down and eventually they exchange that from moving to worshiping the creator to worshiping creation. So we should go there when we talk to people about homosexuality and why it's wrong. But we should keep reading the rest of the verses because after that, Paul says, because we suppress the truth that we know about God, then covetousness happens and envy and murder and strife and deceit and gossip and slander and faithlessness. See, if you mess with God and you suppress the truth that you know about him, you will exchange that truth for something else and it always leads to decay and it always leads to collapse spiritually. So don't mess with Jesus. The gospel is gory. It involves violence. It involves bloodshed. God will trample his enemies one day. He wears blood-stained clothing. The God of Isaiah 63 is the God of Christianity. But notice what comes after those verses in Isaiah 63 where it describes in vivid detail God trampling his enemies. Verse 7 comes in. Gospel hope. I I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord according to all that the Lord has granted us and the great goodness to the house of Israel that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. There's the balance. 
Because we don't want to just say God is angry and never talk about his love or mercy. But we don't only want to talk about his love and mercy and never talk about his anger and wrath. There's the balance. God showed his love. He showed his goodness by trampling his son. God trampled Jesus on the cross. God poured out his wrath on his son for sinners. That's how God clears the guilty. And when you turn from your sins and you repent and you fess up and admit that you've broken his commandments and you've contributed to the destruction of this world, his world, and you look to Jesus and you cling to him, that's how God clears the guilty through the gospel. Jesus went to the cross to be guilty for us. He took our blame and fully absorbed, like, like a sponge, he fully absorbed every last ounce of God's wrath and anger directed towards sinners. The question is, will you believe it? Will you trust it? The gospel is gory. It's violent. It involves bloodshed. God will trample his enemies one day, but you can escape his righteous, just, holy anger by turning from sin and trusting in Jesus. Let Jesus be trampled for you. Let Jesus' blood splatter up on God the Father's garments for you. God the Father's great love caused him to send Jesus because he was angry at our sin. His justice was satisfied when he poured his wrath out on his son. That's the gory gospel of the gloriously perfect triune God that scripture reveals. So don't mess with Jesus. Leave him intact. Worship the full-orbed character of the God of the Bible. Worship the God of Isaiah 63. Worship the God of John 3.16. Worship the God of Nahum. Worship the God revealed in the gory gospel. And may the Spirit of God give us eyes to see and behold Jesus being trampled for us. Will you believe today? I hope you take away from this, Christian, just an overwhelming sense of sadness that you know people who don't know Jesus, that you would be struck again and anew by the good news of the gospel that Jesus was trampled by his father and his blood splattered up on his father's garments for you. I hope that message would land on your heart again. I'm praying it lands on mine again, that we would be broken in our hearts for those that don't know Jesus, for our family members, our co-workers, our neighbors, people here at this church Vacation Bible School this week. We need to be broken and praying that these kids hear the gory gospel that Jesus was trampled for them. We want to pray that God opens their eyes. I hope you leave today just that weightiness. But I also hope, Christian, you leave here with joy today and overwhelming, I can't believe it's true, but I know it's true, and overwhelming joy of what Jesus did to bring you to God. And so I think that, I pray that you would leave that tension intact in your heart today. Overwhelming sadness for those that don't know Jesus, but an overwhelming gladness in your heart 
that Jesus was walked on all over by a holy, angry God in order to bring you to him so that you could be adopted into his family. I pray that you would be overwhelmed and just as you leave the tension intact that God is angry and that God is love, that you would leave the tension intact in your heart, that there are people that don't know Jesus and you have a sense of sadness, but you would have a sense of gladness of all that he's done to bring you to God. And if you're not a Christian, I pray that your heart would be struck at God's great love in sending forth his son. Would you repent? Would you turn from sin? And would you trust in God so that you can be declared not guilty. Think about your life. Think about your thoughts. Think about, think about the thoughts that you've thought. Think about the words over your life that have come out of your mouth. Think about the actions. Think about the things you've done and thought when no one else was around. Think about the motives that have been driving your heart your whole life. Think about how hideous that is. Isn't that hideous? And see that being transferred to Jesus and see God pouring his wrath out for your sin for mine. And then picture the perfect life of Jesus getting credited to you and to me. He takes the blame. And we get good because we get credited with his righteousness. That's the gospel. Will you believe? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your great love. What a weighty, heavy message. I pray that if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, God, they would believe it right now. Would you grant them repentance leading to salvation? And for those of us who are Christians, Father, may we be struck again the utter lostness of the people that we know that don't know Jesus. And we would be struck again at the utter lostness and darkness that you delivered us from because you trampled your son. And may we look to the son and find life this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Our hope is that today's message empowers you by God's grace to live God's way. For more information, visit us online at gracebath.net.